Ghislaine Maxwell's documents show a whole lot of stuff that we need to talk about here. Herman Cain passes away, John Lewis's funeral comes by, mask mandates hit Wisconsin, and the earthquake that everyone forgot. I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary. Good morning and welcome to Contemporary. We are welcoming in a new audience today on top of everything else that we have going here because I took a shot at doing Instagram again and it looks like it's working a little bit better this time than it was last time. I'm using my phone this time and not my tablet so we'll see how it comes in. Unfortunately I won't be able to see DLive on the monitor like I usually do but welcome in the new audience. Obviously you won't be able to interact with them but we'll see if we can get some more people coming up and following this way but on top of everything else, we've got a ton to get to today, including some news. Well, I mean, look at the top of the uh, tabs bar. There's so much going on here. But before we get started here, head on over to freedomscoop.com. Freedomscoop.com is going to be your one-stop shop for all of your news and commentary needs. We have got the Daily Ignoramus, and call me ignorant over there. We've got the Generational Gap. They'll be on later on tonight. We've got my shows. We've got the Freckles and Brit show. We've got the R-Rated Conservative, and we carry the Breakdown with Birkenhoff. So come on over there and check us out. Pick up some of our swag, too, because that uh, really helps us out. That helps us uh, support great creators and helps us support independence for great creators. So come on over and help us out. So... We're going to get started right away on the stocks today. We have got the Dow Jones to read today. It looks like we had a pretty big tumble yesterday, which a lot of that comes from the contracting economy that we saw there, which that has been not talked about in the news over the past couple of days. It looks like there was a successful distraction from that. We'll talk about that in a bit here. But uh, yeah, that was quite the tumble, if you can see over there. Those of you over on Instagram and over on the audio platforms, I've got the graph up on the screen. But yeah, drop from 26.4 down to 2,600. For what the economy shrank, I honestly would have expected a bigger sell-off. So I'm kind of excited to see what we're seeing here, but still, a loss is a loss, and people are going to come out and say, oh, well, my God, well, it's the Trump economy kicking in again. But let's get reading on to here, because we've got a lot to get to, and a little bit of time to get there, and we want to give Stephen Ignoramus plenty of time, too. So... Our crossover fans can watch both shows, but let's see what we've got going on here from Investor's Business Daily. Dow Jones futures signal stock market rally after Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google earnings from Ed Carson. Dow Jones futures and S&P 500 futures rose modestly early Friday, while NASDAQ futures jumped on strong earnings from Apple, Fang, and Amazon, Facebook, and Google parent Alphabet after a mixed but bullish session for the coronavirus stock market rally. Vertex Pharmaceuticals and Atlassian were among the many other notable after-hours reports. The stock market rally had a mixed Thursday but closed near session highs. The major indices rebounded from intraday lows with the Nasdaq moving higher, even better. Leading stocks outperformed with several breaking out or clearing out other buy points. In overnight trading, Apple stock, Amazon stock, and Facebook stock rose solidly after the big beats with Facebook and Amazon both nearly doubling earnings. Google stock edged lower early Friday despite its better than expected headline result. These four stocks closed Thursday with a combined valuation of nearly $5 trillion. So the coronavirus market rally may take its cue from their action at Friday's open. 
Apple stock, Amazon stock, and Facebook stock arguably could be actionable Friday morning. Vertex stock rose modestly after strong earnings and guidance. Atlassian stock fell as the collaboration software maker guided lower for current quarter earnings. Apple and Amazon stock are on the IBD leaderboard. Google stock and Team stock are on the IBD long-term leaders list watch list. Facebook stock and Vertex stock are on the IBD 50. Dow Jones futures rose 0.3% versus fair value. Post earnings gains from Apple, Merck, and Caterpillar are boosting the Dow Jones industrial average, while Exxon Mobil and Chevron are drags. S&P 500 futures climbed 0.6%. NASDAQ 100 futures leapt 2%, lifted by Apple stock, Amazon stock, and Facebook stock. The official China Manufacturing Index rose 0.2 points in July to 51.1, signaling slightly faster growth and beating views for 50.8. Eurozone GDP plunged 12.1% on quarter-on-quarter in quarter two, with the report coming a day after data shows the U.S. economy contracted at a record 13 or 32.9% annualized rate. Meanwhile, ex, uh, extra unemployment benefits of $600 a week are expiring, as Congress couldn't agree on a new stimulus bill. Jobless claims have picked up again in the last two weeks, among several signs suggesting that a nascent economy recovery is stalling. Remember, that overnight action in Dow Futures, Amazon stock, and elsewhere doesn't necessarily translate into actual trading in the next regular stock market session. Dow Jones Industrial Average Futures predicted Thursday's week open, but not the market bounce. Yeah, that was a pretty good-sized bounce. It just dropped off like a stone right in the beginning, but all of a sudden, we're back up and going. So, let's keep going here from CNBC. Dow drops more than 200 points after the biggest U.S. GDP contraction on the record from Fred Imbert. The Dow Jones Industrial Average and S&P 500 closed lower on Thursday as investors digested a record-setting drop in the U.S. economic activity. Those losses were kept in check, however, as shares of major tech companies rose ahead of earnings. The 30-stock Dow slid 225.92 points, or 0.8%, to end the day at 26,313.65. The S&P 500 dipped 0.4% to 32,46.22. The Nasdaq Composite outperformed, rising 0.4% to 587.81. Data from the U.S. government released Thursday showed gross domestic product plunged a record 32.9% in the second quarter. The number was not as bad as feared. However, as economists surveyed by Dow Jones had expected a 34.7% decline. Meanwhile, U.S. weekly jobless claims came in at uh, 1.434 1.434 million, roughly in line with estimates. However, continuing claims, or those who have been collecting for at least two weeks, totaled 17.018 million, up from 16 million last week. The stock market has to look forward to, and most economic data looks backwards, said David Bonson, a chief investment officer at the Bonson Group. Investors should be prepared for choppy process of data digestion, but not be surprised that the market feels the future is better than the present and unprecedented stimulus and liquidity exists to drive valuations. That was a mouthful of big words. Thursday's data sent the benchmark 10-year Treasury yield lower to around 0.54%, putting pressure on bank stocks. J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, and Bank of America all fell at least 1.5%. Citigroup dropped 3.1%. What you're seeing in the data in in the market reaction is the roll-off of the extra unemployment insurance is a big deal. 
said Tom Hanlon, Global Investment Strategist at Ascent Private Capital Management. There is a lot of expectation for Congress to come through. That's why those recovery sectors, energy, financials, and materials, are the ones that are off today, which is probably true because the unemployment is going away and people are going to have to be paying some uh, utilities coming up here. So my cousin over on, uh, I think it was Facebook, maybe it was Instagram, I don't know. Uh, but my cousin pointed out the fact that if you've been unemployed, you got the stimulus, which you were supposed to spend. I understand the people that just went out and spent it because that's what you were supposed to do was go out and spend it. So you could boost the economy and it wouldn't drop as far. But you also got the $600 extra every week on top of your unemployment benefit, which is what? 70% depending on state of what you would what your normal wage was so you got all of this together an extra 600 bucks a week from the federal government for the entire time you were unemployed and unfortunately you didn't think to save any of that money so that's something you got to think about too because I mean rents are coming up people I mean it should have been easy to go back and pay your rent but I mean if you were blowing it all on stupid shit and I know that there are people that do that. There were people that were probably good, hung on to the money, and made sure that they had it for a rainy day. That's why it was there. And we're coming up to a rainy day. But I'm sure that there were plenty of other people that just went off and blew it all away as well. So, I 32.9% GDP withdrawal because the governor's said that you have to stay home and you're not allowed to go to work. Even in my state, the governors came out and said, you're not allowed to go to work. If this doesn't feel like a coordinated crash of the economy, I don't know what does. But we've got news to get to on top of the stocks and everything else too. But I figured you guys would like a little bit of a discussion that was going on with that. Let's see what we've got here from NBC News. Unsealed documents show Epstein-Maxwell correspondence in 2015 from Sarah Fitzpatrick, Tom Winard, Merritt Engwright, and Adil Kaplan. A trove of court documents unsealed Thursday night appeared to show that the late accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein was in contact with his now-charged confidant, Ghislaine Maxwell, in 2015. Attorneys for Maxwell, who was arrested July 2nd, have argued that she hadn't come into contact with Epstein for more than a decade and is the target of an overzealous prosecutor. In one email between Epstein and Maxwell in 2015, Epstein appears to be composing a draft of a statement for Maxwell to release publicly. The date in January 2015 is a few weeks after one of Epstein's alleged victims, Virginia Roberts, uh, Roberts Goofrey, first shared the story with a British newspaper. In another typo-filled email a few days later, dated January 25, 2015, Jeffrey E. writes, You have done nothing wrong, and I would dull urge you to start acting like it. Go outside, head high, not as an escaping, uh, yeah, this was typo riddle after all, convict, go to parties, deal with it. The email refers to GMAX either in the recipient section or the email section. That's the name the FBI and federal prosecutors say Maxwell used when trying to set up a cell phone this past year in another person's name. Prosecutors have contended that this was one of the ways Maxwell sought to avoid detection and possible arrest. 
The documents released Thursday night have been under seal for years, but Judge Loretta Preska last week ruled that a batch of documents from the case, including a deposition of Maxwell and correspondence between Maxwell and Epstein, could be released. The documents are from a defamation case filed against Maxwell in 2015 by Virginia Roberts Jufri, who has alleged that Epstein sexually abused her and that Maxwell and Epstein directed her to have sex with other men between 2000 and 2002. The case, which Jufri brought after Maxwell accused her of lying when she said Maxwell and Epstein had exploited and abused her, was settled privately. The unsealed documents released Thursday also contained allegations that Jane Doe III, whose allegations match those of Jufri, was forced to have sexual relations with Prince Andrew on Epstein's private island in what was described as an orgy with numerous other underage girls. It does not specify the year. The woman was allegedly instructed to Ep or by Epstein to give the prince whatever he demanded and report back to him on the detail of the sexual abuse. There is a whole bunch of shit going on here, and it's... We may not be done sorting through this until 2030. There's so much crap going through here. Lifestyles of the rich and the famous, I guess. And we're going to save this to talk with on Monday with even more going on in the article. But we do need to keep moving along here from the Daily Wire. Clinton was with Epstein on Private Island at the same time as two young girls witness claims in unsealed court documents. Oh, who's going to get Arkansas over this one? Court documents from a lawsuit involving deceased accused child sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein were unsealed on Thursday night despite objections from Ghislaine Maxwell, a British socialite, who was recently arrested by federal authorities for allegedly engaging in sex trafficking. Maxwell, awaiting trial in a federal prosecution, had delayed the planned release of the documents in a 2015 civil suit by filing objections in the last minute, provoking the ire of U.S. District Judge Loretta Preska, the Miami Herald reported. The irritated, or this irritated the judge, rather, who ruled last week that the documents should be unsealed. Preska wrote in a filing, The court is troubled, but not surprised, that Ms. Maxwell has yet again sought to muddy the water as the clock clicks closer to midnight. One revelation that came from the release court documents was that the allegation that the former Democrat president, Bill Clinton, traveled to Epstein's pedophile island, a claim that Clinton has denied. Accuser Virginia Jufri said that when Clinton was on the island with Epstein, there were two young girls there whom she could identify. And there's a transcript there, so this will also, because I pulled this up right before the show, will land in the Discord, so you guys can see the transcript. A man who says he was a tech worker on the island told Netflix's Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich, that he witnessed Clinton on the island. Yeah, bunch of stuff here. So yeah, this will be going over the Discord. You guys, you gotta see this stuff, man. But we're gonna keep going off of this. I mean, we all kind of knew that Bill was there. I, I think that was common knowledge by the end of it. I'm pretty sure that everybody knew that, but yeah, we all knew. Let's keep moving along here, though. From the Associated Press, Trump floats the idea of election day, or election delay, rather, a virtual impossibility. So my lovely co-host pointed out the fact that uh, this came out right as the economic news was coming out, and nobody talked about the econ uh, economic release yesterday, but they all talked about this. Let's see what the AP has to say, though, from Zeke Miller and Colleen Long. 
President Donald Trump lagging in the polls and grappling with the deepening economic and public health crises on Thursday floated the startling idea of delaying the November 3rd presidential election. His campaign to sow doubt about the election's outcome drew immediate pushback from Democrats and Republicans alike. In a nation that has held itself up as a beacon for, to the world for its history of peaceful transfer of power. Trump suggested the delay as he pushed unsubstantiated allegations that increased mail-in voting due to the coronavirus pandemic would result in fraud. But shifting election day is virtually impossible, and the very idea represented another bracing attempt by Trump to undermine confidence in the American political system. The date of the presidential election, Tuesday after the first Monday in November in every fourth year, is enshrined in federal law and would require an act of Congress to change. Top Republicans in Congress quickly rebuffed Trump's suggestion. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said the election date is set in stone. And House GOP Leader Kevin McCarthy said the election should go forward as planned. Regardless, the Constitution makes no provisions for a delay in the end of Trump's term, noon on January 20th, 2021. With universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history, Trump tweeted on Thursday. It'll be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote. After facing blowbacks from Republicans for even floating the delay, Trump appeared to retreat on Twitter Thursday afternoon, suggesting he was merely trying to highlight alleged problems with the mail-in balloting. Do I want to see a date changed? No, Trump said later during a press conference on the coronavirus uh, response. But I don't want to see a crooked election. Trump has increasingly sought to cast doubt on November's election and the expected pandemic-induced surge in mail-in and absentee voting. He has called remote voting options the biggest risk to his election. His campaign and the Republican Party have sued to combat the practice, which was once a significant advantage for the GOP. In fact, only five states conduct elections entirely by mail, although more states expect to rely more heavily on the mail-in ballots in November. Because of the uh, virus outbreak, experts assess that delays in counting mail-in ballots could mean results won't be known on Election Day. Trump's suggestion of delaying the vote came just minutes after the government reported that the U.S. economy shrank a dizzying 32.9% annual rate in the April-June quarter. By far the worst quarterly plunge ever as the coronavirus outbreak shut down businesses through tens of millions out of work and set unemployment surging to 14.7%. With just over three months until Election Day, Trump trails in the polls nationally and across battleground states, and some surveys even suggest traditionally Republican-leaning states could be in play. While Trump has come back before and after trailing consistently in the polls throughout 2016, survey data has raised the possibility that he could face a landslide loss if he doesn't turn things around to Biden, of all fucking people. I mean, I could see if they were putting somebody up who had talent or the ability to string a coherent sentence, but to Biden on top of everything. I don't buy a lot of this here. I know that there was the rumor going around that if Trump tried to delay the election, they would fix coronavirus in a hurry, and I do think that some of this is coming out here because there may be some pushback as to what's going on with the election. We may be seeing some of this come along, but there's so much going on. No, he can't move the election. It it doesn't happen. It does take an act of Congress, and they can't agree on a relief bill, so good luck trying to get them to work together on something like that. So there's a lot of stuff in play here. There's a lot of stuff to talk about and a lot of stuff moving here. And yes, as Elaine pointed out, this may have been a distraction from the fact that we did have a 32.9% economic drop because 
your Democrat governors all across the state said, you, thou shalt not go to work. And the federal government just kept printing money and printing money and printing money. So, and we're not going to know who won on election day, on election night. Who, whoever's live covering election night, whoever is doing live streams on that, whether we do something like that or not, whoever is doing any of that, nobody's going to know what happened by midnight on election night. It's just not going to happen. So there is a bunch of stuff to think about, a bunch of stuff to worry about. And this lawsuit after lawsuit, illegitimate president after illegitimate president, nobody's going to know what's happening. This I, I can't even begin to comment on everything that's going to happen this coming November. It is going to be a shit show. I've got an opinion piece from the New York Times, a former newspaper. Let's have a look at what's going on there. I'm going to read just briefly from this because it looks like most of the points that were in this that I wanted to cover were in the other article, but I archived it. So let's see what we have here. Trump might try to postpone the election. That's unconstitutional. He should be removed unless he relents from Stephen G. Calabresi. I have voted Republican in every presidential election since 1980, including for Trump in 2016. I wrote op-eds and a law review article protesting what I believe was an unconstitutional investigation by Robert Mueller. I also wrote an op-ed opposing President Trump's impeachment. But I'm frankly appalled by the president's recent tweet seeking to postpone the November election until recently. I had taken as political hyperbole that the Democrats' assertion that President Trump is a fascist. But this latest tweet is fan or fascistic in itself lends or and is itself grounds for the president's immediate impeachment again by the house of the representatives and his removal from office by the senate here's what the president tweeted oh you are treading on dangerous territory with universal mail-in voting not absentee voting which is good 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history it would be in great embarrassment to the usa delay the election until the people can properly securely and safely vote the nation has faced grave challenges before, just as it does today with the spread of the coronavirus, but it has never canceled or delayed a presidential election. Not in 1864, when President Lincoln was expected to lose and the South looked as, as if it might defeat the North. Not in 1932, in the depths of the Great Depression. Not in 1944, during World War II. So we certainly should not even consider canceling this fall's election because of the president's concern about mail-in voting, which is likely to increase because of fears of COVID-19. It is up to each of the 50 states whether to allow universal mail-in voting, and Article 2 of the Constitution explicitly gives the state total power over the selection of presidential election, or electors, rather, which I've been saying for six years. Election Day was fixed by a federal law passed in 1845, and the Constitution itself in the 20th Amendment specifies that the newly elected Congress meet at noon, Jan January 3, 2021, and that the terms of the President and Vice President end at noon, January 20, 2021. If no newly elected President is available, the Speaker of the House of Representatives becomes the acting President. Oh, oh, I think I see something happening here. I'm going to research that. We're going to hold on to this article and I'm going to research that because that is something we need to look into. 
But we're going to keep going here because we've got a bunch more to get to. Speaking of election news and mail-in voting, Postal Service may close offices, cut service ahead of election from the Associated Press. The U.S. Postal Service is considering closing post offices across the country, sparking concerns ahead of an anticipated surge of mail-in ballots in the 2020 elections. U.S. Senator Joe Manchin and a union leader said on Wednesday, Manchin said he has received numerous reports from post offices and colleagues about service cuts or looming closures in West Virginia and elsewhere, prompting him to send a letter to Postmaster General Louis DeJoy asking him for an explanation. The possible cutbacks come as DeJoy, a major donor to President Trump, who took control of the agency last month, moves to eliminate overtime for hundreds of thousands of postal workers, potentially causing a delay in mail-in deliveries. A recent document from the Postal Service obtained by the Associated Press described the need for an operational pivot to make the cash-strapped agency financially stable. It's just asinine to think that you can shut something down or throttle it back in terms of the pandemic when basically the lifeline for voting and democracy is going to be in the hands of the Postal Service mansion, a Democrat told reporters on Wednesday. He said at least two post offices in West Virginia have been scheduled to close next month, but the agency has slowed its plans. Spokesman for the Postal Service referred questions to a prior statement from DeJoy which said the agency has experienced over a decade of financial losses with no end in sight and we face an impending liquidity crisis. The statement goes on to say that it is critical that the Postal Service take a fresh look at our operations and make necessary adjustments. Mark DeMonstein, president of the American Postal Workers Union, which represents more than 200,000 postal workers and retirees, said there's definitely buzz around closures, although he said he was not aware of the specific details. A representative for the union said rank-and-file postal employees have been told by managers that their offices are being targeted for potential cutbacks. The logical conclusion is that he's going to try and close some post offices, Diamondstein said, of the Postmaster General's uh, belt-tightening strategies. The coronavirus pandemic has created further strain on postal service finances. The service reported a $4.5 billion loss for the quarter ending in March before the full effects of the shutdown sank in. Manchin's letter noted that the coronavirus relief package passed by Congress in March included authorization for the agency to borrow up to $10 billion from the U.S. Treasury. The money was intended to help the Postal Service maintain essential services during the pandemic. Wow. Any other business in the world would be shut down at this point after losing $4.5 billion. But not the U.S. government or an arm of the U.S. government. And, I mean, if you're hemorrhaging money this badly... It might be time to shut the whole thing down, restructure it, and rethink it. Now, there are a lot of people out there on social media that say, well, you can't shut the post office down. It's constitutional. It's unconstitutional. It's not a a business. It's a service. It's an essential service. Now, if you're hemorrhaging money that bad, even just as a temporary point, I mean, FedEx, UPS, even Amazon could probably build a better... uh, postal service than the postal service at this point but yeah i mean it is time to start looking at at least shutting it down for a month or two restructuring it so it's actually feasible and then going from there because it is not feasible at this point it is absolutely not feasible and you are putting the jobs of thousands of people on the line every day just from the financial standpoint because if it does default especially with the shrinking economy and the inflating cash. That'll put a lot more people out of work instantly 
then if you stop it, lay them off for a month and restructure everything. Go so. It's time to sit back and take a good hard look at what the post office is doing. It is time, and how they're getting their money. All right, let's keep going here from CNBC. Former GOP presidential candidate Herman Cain dies after a battle with the coronavirus. From Kevin Bruninger. Herman Cain, a former presidential hopeful who was once considered by President Trump for the Federal Reserve, has died after being hospitalized with the coronavirus. He was 74. Cain's death was announced Thursday on his website by Dan Calabrese, who edits the site and had previously written about his colleague's diagnosis. Herman Cain, our boss, our friend, like a father to many of us, has passed away. Calabrese said in the blog post, We all prayed so hard every day. We knew the time would come when the Lord would call him home. But we really liked having him here with us. And we held out hope that we'd have a full recovery. Cain was among the highest profile public figures in the U.S. to have died from COVID-19. Less than two weeks after, or before receiving his diagnosis, Cain was, attended Trump's rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which had been staged despite concerns about mass gatherings during the pandemic. Kane, a stage 4 cancer survivor, tweeted a photograph of himself at Trump's rally showing him surrounded by other attendees, none of whom appeared to be wearing masks or other protective gear. A July 2nd statement from Kane's social media accounts announced his hospitalization, saying there's no way of knowing for sure how or where Mr. Kane contracted the virus. The Trump campaign said after Kane's diagnosis that he had not met with the president at the Tulsa rally. The campaign said that all attendees at the event had their temperatures checked upon entry and that masks and hand sanitizer were handed out but not required for use. Before the event, the campaign revealed that six members of the team involved in the rally preparations had tested positive for the virus and had been quarantined. Trump later Thursday tweeted his condolences for Kane and his family. My friend Herman Kane, a powerful voice of freedom and all that is good, passed away this morning, the president wrote. Herman had an incredible career and was endorsed by everyone that ever met him, especially me. He was a very special man, an American patriot, and a great friend. So, and of course, now they're going to try and point this to Herman Cain dying of coronavirus, but they did point out in this article, which nobody else pointed out when I heard people talking about this yesterday, the fact that Herman Cain was also a stage 4 cancer survivor, so he was immunosuppressed already. He was already having problems. This, I, he, The question comes out of this. Is this uh, Herman Cain died of coronavirus or he died with coronavirus? Because those are two distinct things that you need to keep in mind. So those of us at Freedom Scoop put out our hearts to the families of Herman Cain. We hope that you find peace in his passing and can move forward from this. All right, let's keep going here. Uh, this was a live updates session from John Lewis's funeral. Uh, John Lewis's funeral ends in somber burial ceremony. John Lewis's casket arrives at the Southview Cemetery. So, I didn't really want to go through all of this here, but there were a couple key points to this. B.B. Uh, Winnens performs Good Trouble, the song that he wrote in honor of Lewis, Obama, put a eulogy out, and we'll listen to a little bit of that here in a second. Uh, Obama politicized the eulogy, which we'll listen to in just a second here. So yeah, there's nothing that Barack Obama can't politicize. Absolutely not. But yes, George Floyd 
and John Lewis get to have funerals during the coronavirus pandemic, but you can't pay your last respects to your grandmother or anybody else for that matter. They're, you're not allowed to do any of that, but John Lewis can have a funeral. All right, let's keep going up here. We're flying through today, which is good because there was a lot to fly through. From CBS News, in John Lewis' eulogy, Obama calls for making Election Day a federal holiday, giving equal representation to citizens in Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, ending partisan gerrymandering, and eliminating the filibuster if it interferes with Americans' rights. In a eulogy, let me turn your ears on here, and we'll hear what former President Barack Obama had to say. Once we pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, we should keep marching to make it even better by making sure every American is automatically registered to vote, including former inmates who've earned their second chance. By adding polling places and expanding early voting and making Election Day a national holiday so if you are somebody who's working in a factory or you're a single mom, now, I wanted to point, I stopped this here for just a second here and point out the fact they called this a socially distanced funeral, but I mean, this does not look like six feet in between all these people. And it doesn't look like these are all people from the same household either. So I just wanted to point that out. Let's keep listening. Who's got to go to her job and doesn't get time off. You can still cast your ballot. by guaranteeing that every American citizen has equal representation in our government, including the American citizens who live in Washington, D.C. and in Puerto Rico. They're Americans. By ending some of the partisan gerrymandering so that all voters have the power to choose their politicians, not the other way around. And if all this takes eliminating the filibuster, another Jim Crow relic, in order to secure the God-given rights of every American, then that's what we should do. Yeah. So there was that. That was just a little clip of this. And I've got a Twitchy article, which is not green check verified, but I wanted to share with you guys as well. But yeah, this is... This is exactly the time to have a camp. I mean, is Barack Obama campaigning? Is, does he want to be president again? What What are we seeing here? Does anybody know what we're seeing here? Because I don't. I thought this was supposed to be remembering John Lewis. All right, let's get the live. Let's turn the autoplay volume off and get the live chat back up here. And let's keep going off of this here from twitchy.com. Funeral, or DNC, Obama's eulogy for John Lewis, sounds an awful lot like he's campaigning, which we just watch here. Uh, writing from Twitchy, the fuck? Is this a funeral or the DNC? Watch. Nothing too sacred for Obama to politicize. Can't figure out who in power is keeping minorities from voting, but okay. But hey, good news. Looks like we're allowed to go to church again. Oh wait, not us, just some people. So there was some more video that went along with this as well. 
It really comes off badly. We get it. Lewis probably would want them to talk about fighting the good fight, but bringing up the filibuster and babbling about mail-in voting? Really? Come on, man. And yeah, we've got some of the tweets here. If one can loot and riot, one can go to the voting booth. Predictable. Trump will never give or e-speech like this. Never, ever. Actually, he cannot inspire anyone. Right, President Trump doesn't use funerals as political rallies. I thought this was an eight-day funeral, not a DNC convention. I guess since police won't protect the DNC convention, now they decided to change the funeral into another propaganda rally. So, yeah, that's some of the some of the tweets that came out here. The green new Karen, I like that. Metaximus. I'm going to save this article just so I can follow this person. Only royalty is allowed to attend church. Special treatment for special people. So, yeah, that's what happened over there at John Lewis's uh, funeral here. Let's keep going on. Uh, a little bit of general interest up here. We still got a bunch to get to, and we're almost, well, okay, we're not almost an hour in. I guess it got out later than I uh, thought I was going to. But uh, let's keep going here from the Daily Wire. Trump blamed after Democrat HQ burned to the ground in Arizona. Police claim Democrat activists responsible. From Ryan Savetra. Leftists blame President Trump and Republicans after an alleged arson fire burned down the Maricopa County Democratic Party office building last week, but police say the culprit was a Democrat activist. Hold on. The office, which serves as the state's Democratic Party headquarters, was set on fire during early morning hours of last Friday. Late this week, the Phoenix Police Department announced that Matthew Egler was arrested Wednesday morning on arson charges. The 29-year-old was a former volunteer at the office, but had recently been banned from continued volunteer service, the department said. The fire happened after midnight on Friday, July 24th, at the offices near the Central and Thomas in downtown Phoenix. The fire was extinguished, but not before causing substantial damage to the building. Surveillance video showed a man arriving alone in a car on the overnight hours. The video shows the suspect breaking glass to get into the building and then lighting an incendiary fire inside. The man then drove off. The department added task force investigators were able to link the vehicle from the surveillance video to the family of Egler. Further investigation revealed that Egler had posted information on social media, linking him to the crime and threatening additional violence. AZ Central reported that in a document released by the Maricopa County Superior Court, police cited improbable cause statement that Egler's post on social media admitting to his involvement with the fire and his anger with the Maricopa County Democrats. The local newspaper described Egler as a Democratic activist who party officials say has had a long and troubled history with the Maricopa County Party over the years. The paper said that the Arizona Secretary of State's office confirmed that Egler is a registered Democrat. Egler had reportedly been banned from volunteering due to the nature of his previous behaviors. Police said in their probable cause statement that the video is of Egler, who had borrowed a family member's 2009 Pontiac Vibe, to drive to the building to set it on fire, the paper added. After the building was burned down, leftists rushed to pin the blame on Trump and the Arizona Republican Party. Phil Hendry tweeted, Investigators now believe this was arson. Trump is also desperate to get er is so desperate to get reelected, so pathetically desperate. Even if voters don't want him, he's doing everything and anything provoking riots, reopening an economy during a plague, setting fires. Willie Garson tweeted, They burnt down the Democratic headquarters in Maricopa County because Trump and because of Arizona and this fucking nightmare. Act like Americans, you cult followers. Find your decency for a change, you're better than him. 
So, yeah, they tried to go back and pin this on Trump. There are some of the pictures of what uh, happened there when they burned it off to the ground, and it was one of their own. Milwaukee was going to burn, is what they said. If we don't get Bernie Sanders, we will burn Milwaukee. And, well, they didn't burn Milwaukee, but they're burning everything else around the country. So, that's what we're seeing off of this here. I'm going to save this one for Monday, too. Pelosi announces mandatory mask uh, policy for the House from CBS News from Catherine Watson. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi mandated the wearing of face masks in the U.S. House of Representatives on Wednesday, hours after the Republican uh, President or Representative Louis Gohmert announced he had tested positive for COVID-19. Gohmert has frequently forgone wearing a mask on Capitol Hill in recent days. Members of the staff will be required to wear masks in the halls of the House, Pelosi said during the remarks she made on the House floor. She explained that members and staffers will not be allowed in the House chamber if they refuse to obey the, loo, uh, the new mandate. The chair would also like to remind members that the speaker has the authority to direct the sergeant-at-arms to remove a member from the floor as a matter of decorum, Pelosi added. To reiterate, the chair views the failure to wear a mask as a serious breach of decorum. Gohmert claimed in a video posted on Twitter that he was tested twice at the White House before he was set to travel with Trump to Texas. And both of these tests came back positive. Gohmert 66 says he's asymptomatic. Gohmert even suggested he could have contracted COVID-19 from wearing a mask, even though studies show face coverings help slow the spread of droplets containing the virus. And all the other massive things that go along with that as well. So, yep, they're going to have masks in every single house thing going on there. So they can virtue signal out to everybody here which we'll be doing here in this state. I'll be talking about that in a bit as well. So, yep, Pelosi says you must wear a mask if you're on the floor of the House. Let's keep going here from the Daily Wire. Trump says Oregon officials will clear out beehive of terrorists in Portland, but will send National Guard if they don't, from Eric Quintanar. President Trump threatened Thursday to send National Guard into Portland, Oregon to quell the nightly riots that have consumed the city's federal courthouse and prompted clashes between left-wing extremists and the law enforcement officers tasked with protecting federal property. During a press conference at the White House, Trump said that federal agents will remain in Portland under an agreement with the governor in order to monitor whether the state is capable of restoring peace to the city. And if they don't do it. We will send in the National Guard and we'll take care of it, Trump said, also adding that many should be arrested because they're professional agitators. These are professional anarchists. These are people that hate our country and we're telling them right now that we're coming in very soon, the National Guard, he said. Trump also said that the mission of the National Guard, if it were deployed, would vary significantly from the current federal agents at the courthouse who have been stationed inside and around the building in what the president referred to excuse me, referred to as a cocoon. These are not people that just have to guard the courthouse and save it, Trump said of the National Guard. These are people who are allowed to go forward and do what they have to do, he said, adding that the Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler and Governor Kate Brown would be working over the next two days to clean out this beehive of terrorists in the city. As the Daily Wire previously reported, the Oregon Governor and Department of Homeland Security reached an agreement on Wednesday to hold or to build a robust presence of Oregon State Police in the downtown area per DHS Acting Secretary Chad Wolf. While Brown took to Twitter to refer to the agreement as a decision to withdraw federal officers from Portland, Wolf soon replied saying the terms of the agreement are contingent on the violent activity towards the federal building and officers ending. So yes, and once again, we uh, look to the fact that the federal officers are only allowed to 
protect the federal building and the immediate area around it. But as Elaine pointed out on Monday, this is a very localized thing. This is a very, very localized. I mean, they're not going all through the city and doing this. This is extremely localized to the immediate area surrounding the courthouse. Six blocks of Portland, which is a huge city, well, a six block radius, so probably 40 blocks-ish or so, of a huge city of Portland. So, it's a localized thing. But it's also time for somebody to step in and try and protect the property of the people who lived in this area, who ran businesses in this area. People who are losing their homes, who are losing their jobs, losing their property, losing their personal possessions, their family memories, everything else that they had in this area. It's time to protect these people. So we've got to come to some kind of agreement somewhere. Somewhere there's got to be an agreement between the federal government and the state government and the local government to figure out how to bring this up to an end. But we'll see off of that. From KMOV4, attorney for Mark and Patricia McCloskey files motion to disqualify Gardner from her office for pursuing case. No author given. Uh, an attorney representing Mark and Patricia McCloskey has filed a motion to disqualify the St. Louis circuit attorney and her office from pursuing their case. In a court filing, Joel Schwartz claims the circuit attorney, Kim Gardner, should not be allowed to prosecute their case because of statements made by her campaign regarding the incident. The McCloskeys were charged by Gardner's office after they were seen pointing guns outside their home in the central West End last month. According to Wednesday's court filing in one email sent out before the charges were filed, Gardner's campaign literature read, You might be familiar with the story of the couple who brandished guns during the peaceful protest outside their mansion. And President Trump and the governor are fighting for the two who pointed guns at peaceful citizens. The literature contained links to donate to her re-election campaign. Yeah, we all knew this was going to be a re-election bid. The filing also states the campaign literature was sent after the charges, again referencing the McCloskey's case and links to donate. Gardner and attorney Mary Pat Carl are facing off in the Democratic primary Tuesday. The winner is the presumptive circuit court attorney for the next four years. The McCloskey's attorney state uh, the campaign email show Gardner has personal interest in the outcome of the case. Here, a reasonable person with access to all the facts would find that there was at least the appearance of uh, impropriety and that Ms. Gardner's decision may have been affected by her personal, political, financial, and professional interests, and that her neutrality, judgment, and the ability to administer the law in an objective manner may have been compromised, the filing wrote. So, I mean, yeah, this is an anti-gunner circuit attorney who's running for re-election right now and wants to crucify a gun owner for defending themselves in order to win those progressive votes in the area, get those Democratic progressive votes and... Never mind the fact that she's telling people that, no, you are definitely not allowed to defend yourselves, and all police are bastards, and they're not going to come for you. But you still can't defend yourselves. You're just going to have to bend over and take it. This, If this is a campaign, this is the world's worst campaign. But we saw the same thing in Atlanta when the district attorney, or the prosecutor in the area, put the death penalty on the table for the guy that shot Rayshard Brooks, and it wound up being just a campaign strategy. And I haven't even looked to see what came out of that because they're trying to bury it as far as they can. So, yeah, 
Now, with the federal troops going on into Portland, we're never going to hear the outcome of that one. Unless it comes to the Democrats' favor, then yeah, we'll hear the outcome out. But don't ever expect to hear the outcome of that case, because they have no interest in telling you. It was an overzealous prosecution. The officer is going to get off based on that. And off we're going to go. All right. Let's keep moving off of this here. From Fox News, Fauci suggests goggles, eye shield for better protection against the coronavirus. I think that they just want to see how fucking goofy they can make you look. From Bree Stimson, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert this week, said wearing goggles or an eye shield in addition to face mask would provide better protection against coronavirus, according to a report. Theoretically, you should protect all mucosal surfaces, eyes, nose, mouth, so if you have goggles on or an eye shield, you should use it. He said in an interview with ABC News on Instagram on Wednesday, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention already recommends wearing a face mask that covers the nose and mouth in public, but the virus can also enter through the eyes. Fauci recommends goggles in addition to the face mask for those who want perfect protection from COVID-19, but admitted it's not universally recommended. He added, one of the reasons eyewear hasn't been recommended yet is it's so easy for people to just make a cloth, uh, make a cloth mask. Heading into fall, Fauci said he encourages people to get a flu vaccine and hopes face masks will protect people from the flu as well as the coronavirus, ABC reported. Have you seen any flu deaths reported lately? Have you seen anything? The U.S. is still outpacing every other country and the number of cases with more than 4.3 million and upward of 150,000 deaths. Citation needed, please. Make sure you guys go out and get your goggles and wear them everywhere. All right, let's keep going off of here. From Box 6 out of Milwaukee, Governor Tony Evers declares public health emergency issues a statewide mask mandate. From Katie DeLong. Governor Evers said on Thursday, July 30th, declared a public health emergency and issued an emergency order requiring individuals to wear face coverings when indoors and not in private residence, with some exceptions as clarified and defined but in the order. The order is effective at 12.01 a.m. on Saturday, August 1st, 2020, and will expire on September 28, 2020, or by subsequent superseding order. Whereas on July 30th, 2020, I issued Executive Order Number 82, declaring a public health emergency to combat uncontrolled spread of COVID-19 throughout the state of Wisconsin. On July 26th, the President's COVID-19 Task Force recommended that Wisconsin consider adopting a statewide face covering requirement due to the increasing number of confirmed COVID-19 cases. Whereas face coverings are a proven effective way to slow the spread of COVID-19 without having a significant impact on people's day-to-day lives. Whereas the Centers for Disease Control has called Americans to wear face coverings with CDC directors stating that cloth face coverings are one of the most powerful weapons we have to slow and stop the spread of the virus, particularly when used universally within a community setting. All Americans have a responsibility to protect themselves, their families, and their communities. And there are some exceptions on there. You don't have to wear one when you're eating or drinking. And there was another one in there that really got me. Yeah, the mentally developedly handicapped don't have to wear one. Let's see. 
In accordance with CDC guidelines, the following individuals are exempt from face coverings in Section 2. Children between the ages of 2 and 5 are encouraged to wear a mask. When physical distancing is not possible, the CDC does not recommend masks for children under the age of 2. Individuals who have trouble breathing, individuals who are unconscious, incapacitated, or otherwise unable to remove face covering without assistance. Individuals with medical conditions, intellectual or developmental disabilities, mental health conditions, or other sensory sensitivities that prevent the individual from wearing a face covering. Incarcerated individuals, the Wisconsin Department of Corrections, shall continue to comply with COVID-19 protocols to ensure the health and safety of its staff and individuals in its care. Local governments are strongly encouraged to continue to or create COVID-19 protocols to ensure the health and safety of their staff and individuals in their care. So, yeah, they put that into place here, but, oh, look at all the exceptions that we have going on here. So, yeah. And, of course, they have to come out and show that there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here. So, yeah, no. Uh, there was another one here that I saw here while sleeping firefighters at a... Uh, uh, fire station. You don't have to wear one while you're uh, swimming. Um, there is another one. Engaging activities where federal state law uh, prohibits wearing a face covering. I believe there was another exemption in here for going into a bank. Yep, when you need to temporarily remove your face covering to confirm your identity, such as entering a bank, credit union, or other financial institution, or when having to show that you match your ID card or buying alcohol. So, yeah, they riddled it with exceptions, so this is nothing but a control measure. This, this is not something that we have going on here. I really need to remember when I start this up here, especially when I have Instagram Live going to shut my notifications down over on my phone because that's, what, five of them we've seen so far? Yeah, this is nothing but a control tactic. There's nothing realistic going on here. If this was really a public health pandemic, there wouldn't be these exemptions that are in here. So our legislature is working on to overturning this because the governor will not work with the legislature. He's just going to EO everything out there, and we'll see what happens with this. All right, we just have a few more here, and then we will read the names of everybody who chatted in. So if you want to get your name read at the end of the show, in addition to all these fine people that are here and everybody who's chatted in the chat right now, start throwing stickers up on DLive. Start getting in the chat and... Because I want to thank you. I see that there are six people watching. I know it's a small channel still. There are six people that are watching live right now. So, And I only see two people chatting. So get get up in there. Come on in and uh, help out with us. So let's go ahead and move on here. Governor Whitmer signs order to close some bars for indoor service. Casinos to open on August 5th. From Lansing, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer announced Wednesday that casinos in Detroit will be allowed to partially reopen with 15% capacity, but is also closing bars across the state for indoor service. Whitmer signed Executive Order 2020-160 and 2020-161 in regards to casinos, and starting July 31st, statewide indoor gatherings will be limited to 10 people, and bars will be closed for indoor service across the state. This includes in Regions 6 and 8. As we see COVID-19 cases continue to rise, Michiganders cannot afford to drop our guard. We must take every step possible to save lives, protect the brave men and women on our front lines, and avoid overwhelming our health care system. While we continue to combat COVID-19, said Governor Whitmer, after seeing a resurgence in cases, 
Connected to social gatherings across the state, we must further limit gatherings for the health of our community and economy. By taking these strong actions, we will be better positioned to get our children back into classrooms and avoid a potentially devastating second wave. Yep, get those kids in for their government indoctrination. COVID-19's resurgence is closely associated with super-spreading events at large social gatherings. Often attended by young people, an outbreak at a Lansing bar has resulted in 187 infections. More than 50 cases have been linked to a single house party in Saline, and a sandbar party at Torch Lake over the July 4th weekend led to at least 43 confirmed cases. Therefore, Executive Order 2020-160 limits statewide indoor gatherings to 10 people or less, and across most of the state limits outdoor gatherings to 100. The outdoor gathering limits will remain at 250 in Regions 6 and 8. Executive Order 2020-160 also orders that bars in every region, including those in Regions 6 and 8, must close for indoor service if they earn more than 70% of their uh, gross receipts from sales of alcoholic beverages. Under the governor's orders, Detroit casinos will also be allowed to open on August 5th, but their occupancy will be limited to 15% capacity. Casinos must also, among other things, conduct a daily entry screening protocol for customers and employees, temperature screening. Casinos must require patrons to wear a face covering except while eating or drinking or for identification purposes. So, you're not allowed to go to the bar or enjoy yourself, stay in your home, stay locked in your home forever, which you notice you don't see that going around Instagram or Facebook anymore. None of this stay home shit. And you're not allowed to go to the bar. Unless they serve food, of course, for at least 30% of their business. But go to that casino because gambling nets all kinds of taxes for the state of Michigan. Watch the money. That's what I'm saying. Watch the money, and you'll see what's going on here. So that's what we have to say coming up off of here. I'm going to hold on to this one here. All right. Four more. Let's power through this. And we're going to lose Instagram here in just a little bit. So for those of you over on Instagram, the link is in my bio. You can go ahead and head over to the YouTube link and continue on with the rest of the show. But Instagram Live limits us to an hour. So thanks for watching, everybody who watched over there. From the Hill, Iowa teachers write and send their own obituaries to Governor ahead of fall reopening from Rachel Scully. Iowa teachers are sending mock obituaries to Iowa Governor Kimberly Reynolds in hopes that she will reconsider her school plans for the fall, ABC News reported on Thursday. The movement started after art teacher Jeremy Dumkrieger, who helped start the Facebook group Iowa Educators for a Safe Return to School, shared his self-authored obituary in an op-ed for the local news blog. Iowa starting line in the July 16th post, Dumkrieger called on other teachers who write their obituaries to demand Governor Reynolds declare a statewide school mask mandate. If we do not require a mask mandate, we risk the chance of driving our teachers and schools into the ground, literally, he wrote. The movement has since evolved, with several educators now writing their own obits in hopes of Reynolds providing more guidance on reopening schools. Ten seconds remaining for Instagram. Take care, guys. The movement has since... I think that we are trying to do is dehumanize us in their mind, make her see us as people, Carrie Finley, a 7th grade teacher in Iowa City, told ABC's Good Morning America. Reynolds provided guidance at a press conference Thursday. She said in a, uh, the state will be providing personal protective equipment to schools for an initial 30 days. She added that the Iowa Department of Education will be releasing guidance for schools in the event that someone at a school is infected with the virus. 
we need to keep our next generation learning, growing, and preparing for a bright future in online learning. It is an essential component of that, Reynolds said, but it can't make up for the critical role our schools play in the development of the social and emotional skills that our children rely on. So this is, once again, another piece where they say that, yes, we need to get the people back in because they need their government indoctrination, and we can't let the parents see what kind of crap we're actually teaching them. We can't let them be homeschooled. We can't see, let the parents see the crap. So we got to get them back in here as quick as we can. But on the other end of it, of course, we look at this as well. The teachers, well, they don't want to be there because they'll be making money. And keep it all closed. The coronavirus is going to kill grandma. And one of the things, and I know that all this has to do with the teachers, the elderly teachers that are actually in susceptible range because kids are not are proven to not be a spread vector for the virus and they're not going to social distance either now as elaine was talking about over on uh, the red net show on monday we look at some of this and this may actually be the push for smaller class sizes that we've been trying to see for a long time there are some other pushes here that uh may be coming along with this as well so some things may be coming out of this. We don't know what's going to happen out of this, but we could see some positive things come out of this. More teaching jobs, smaller class sizes, more attention to students. We could see all of this coming up, but just the fact that they think that they're going to die if they go out in public. Because remember, if you step six inches outside of your house, you'll die instantly of COVID-19. All right, let's keep going off of this here from WMC5 Action News, an NBC affiliate out of, does it tell me? It doesn't tell me. Federal grand jury indicts Tennessee state senator on 48 counts of theft, embezzlement, and wire fraud. From WMCAction5News.com staff and Ariana Poindexter. A federal grand jury returned a 48-count indictment against Tennessee State Senator Katrina Robinson for theft and embezzlement involving government programs and wire fraud. The indictment comes a day after U.S. Attorney Mike Dunavant announced federal charges against Robinson, 39. According to the indictment, Robinson is charged with 24 counts of theft and embezzlement including or involving government programs and 24 counts of wire fraud. Robinson was elected to represent the 33rd District in Shelby County in 2018 and is the director of the Healthcare Institute. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Healthcare Institute received more than $2.2 million in federal grants from the Health Resources and Services Administration between 2015 and 2019. During that same time, Robinson is accused of stealing more than $600,000 from Healthcare Institute by compensating herself with more than is allowed by law and using institute funds for payments and purchases for the benefit of herself and her immediate family. The Federal Bureau of Investigation visited Robinson's home Tuesday morning. Agents previously executed search warrants in the Southeast Shelby County home in February of 2020. So, that is uh, what's going on. And it never goes that direction. It never goes the other direction. Or at least you never hear about it. But yeah. There's all this embezzlement, all this criminality going on here, and it all seems to be going in the same direction, going to the left. I don't know if they come out to do this for political power, personal gain, or whatever, but, I mean, these are supposed to be public servants, and, I mean, if we took some time and actually lowered significantly the rate of pay that these people had, then maybe they wouldn't go into these positions. 
So that'll be something here that's never going to make the national news, but it was something that I found interesting. I found it on the Daily Wire, but I already had a bunch of articles from the Daily Wire, so I found it on a local affiliate instead. So that's what we read there. Let's keep going here. The earthquake that the world forgot yesterday. And I was listening to the Michael Knowles show yesterday uh, back on the audio platform while I was at work. The earthquake actually happened while he was on the, uh, live on the Daily Wire. And he commented on it because, I mean, he's in Los Angeles. It was felt there. And, yeah, he's like, oh, well, look, there's a little earthquake going on here. I hope we stay live. But let's see what uh, CBS2 KCAL 9 has to say out of Los Angeles. 4.2 magnitude earthquake hits Pacoima, Rock Southland from CBS LA staff. A 4.2 magnitude earthquake stuck the Pacoima area of San Fernando Valley early Thursday morning and was felt across Southland. It was followed up by two large aftershocks. The trembler hit at 4.29 a.m. according to the U.S. Geological Survey. The epicenter of the earthquake was near Fellows Avenue and Aztec Street. The earthquake was initially recorded as a 4.5, but later downgraded to a 4.2. It struck at a depth of 4.9 miles. It was felt as far south as San Diego and as far north as Bakersfield. People reported on the USGS. I really thought, like, my son fell off the bed or something, Pacoima resident Robert Legospi told CBS LA. So it must have been an aftershock that Knowles uh, felt, not the earthquake itself. Because, yeah, he wouldn't have been on. He, he's on probably about the same time I am in the morning. So, yeah, probably wouldn't have been the original earthquake. Well, maybe. No, it would have been close because it's 4.29 a.m. Pacific time. It's 6.29 a.m. our time. And he's on at the 7 o'clock hour our time. So, yeah, actually, it might have been right about that time. So, or at least one of the aftershocks again. All right, let's keep going here. It was followed up nine minutes later at 4.38 a.m. by a 3.3 magnitude aftershock. Then at 6.48 a.m., a 3.8 magnitude earthquake rattled Pacoima again. That epicenter of that quake was at North Huntington and 5th Street. Renowned seismologist Dr. Lucy Jones called Thursday's tremblers of the garden variety. Today's quake are of the garden variety, California quakes, she wrote on Twitter. In an area with lots of faults in both the 1994 Northbridge and 1971 Silmar quakes, that's the word I'm looking for, the good ordinary life of the Golden State. Okay, so it must have been that second one there, the 648 AM one. There were no reports of injuries or significant damage. The LA Fire Department reported LAFD engaged its earthquake emergency mode with fire engines and helicopters canvassing its 470 mile or square mile jurisdiction. So yeah, we just had a little earthquake that happened over in uh, California. Nobody was hurt. All right, one more here. So get your last minute messages in if you want to be read in the thank yous here. Stupidity upon stupidity, flag removed from St. John's bed and breakfast over Confederate confusion. And there's the image of it right there from Maureen Holiday out of Lansing, Michigan. Bed and breakfast, Nordic pineapple in St. John's has removed their Norwegian flag after dozens of people confuse it with the Confederate flag. Greg and Kirsten Offbecker moved to the historic mansion two years ago and turned it into a B&B. &B. As a decoration, they hung a Norwegian flag next to an American flag at the front entrance of the inn, but dozens of guests and people driving by have accused the couple of flying a Confederate flag. They're the same color, but there are no stars in the Norwegian flag, and the Confederate flag is a big X. 
And the Norwegian flag is part of the Nordic countries. They're all crosses, Offbecker said. Last week, the couple decided to remove the flag as they were updating their marketing materials. We started to have this concern that it was deterring people away from coming to our B&B, Offbecker said. They would see it and make this judgment. Offbecker said she was trying to represent her heritage, but it's not worth the frustration. She said they have received cruel emails and phone calls over the confusion of the flag. What we're getting is so much more negative now, she said. It's not just, hey, you're flying the Confederate flag. It's, you should be ashamed to fly the Confederate flag. You're a bigot because you fly the Confederate flag. Some people are even convinced the home was built by Confederate leaders. In fact, it was built by union workers for the daughter of the St. John's founder. The couple is trying to find a new way to hang their flag without getting complaints. Epic base poem. We're saving this article because we're talking about this one on Monday. All right, and that is going to be it for news for the day. Yay, we made it through another week. Thanks, guys, here. So the last thing that we do on Monday is sit back and read the live chat for everybody here. So the first thing I'm going to do is thank everybody who popped in today. So we'll start off from the beginning to get everybody one last chance to get their last-minute messages in and their stickers in. We have Ron Helton throwing stickers up at the beginning here. Sully Blue showed up, barely, apparently. Thanks uh, for coming on in, guys. Looks like you guys were a couple of the only two people that uh, chatted throughout the day. Which, I came in late. I apologize for that. After 10 hours yesterday, when the alarm went off at 5 o'clock, my body said, absolutely not. So, that was on me. Another, I know there was another name in here. And thank you to, let me see if I can get that back open here. There was, let's get into the Instagram audience too. Uh, Landelius95, also for coming in and checking out the uh, live stream over on Instagram. Before we forget that as well. Uh, Linda Cloud, thanks for coming in and checking us out. That's a new name over here over on YouTube. So thank you, absolutely. And that's it for the day. From Thursday, we had Ron Helton. Miami 1984, Luann Carey over on Periscope. That was a new name. Uh, sorry that you couldn't see everybody else's chat while you were in Periscope, but I don't have the Restream chatbot figuring out how to go into the Periscope uh, chat. Uh, Sully Blue and Blind Fear was in here on Thursday. On Wednesday, we had Ron Helton, Deba Cannabis, Sully Blue, Blind Fear. Miami 1984 was here. Bob Marley number one and Crockett one were all in here. On Tuesday, we had a busy day, and my phone just went off again. We had Redhead Lover 1776, Ron Helton. I haven't seen Redhead Lover for a little while. That's surprising. Uh, Ron Helton, Miami 1984. We had Bob Marley number one again. Washington Redskins showed up. Not the Washington Redskins anymore, because that is the Washington football uh, team now. Sully Blue, we had a Cole Cologne, who was not happy with anything that I had to say. Probably because I hadn't changed the title and he thought I was still going to talk about uh, Biden gifts. But everybody's welcome here. So, Blind Fear, Seawall 728. And on Monday, we had Ron Helton. We had Stayek. I don't know how to pronounce that. S-T-A-E-K in all capital letters. We had Nerdy Ogre, Sparta 000 Ride Control. Thanks for coming in and chatting. And Sully Blue. So, that was everybody who chatted with us throughout the week. I am caught up on the audio platform, so if you'd rather take the show on the go, you have that option as well. I don't know if this video will process before I have to go to work today with 
YouTube's track record, that's probably going to be a no, but we are caught up on the audio platform. Look for that. And this weekend, I will be putting up the bonus content from my appearance on Anna Voltis' show as well. So make sure you head on over to the audio platforms and check that out, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Look for, search the Red and Ed show over there. You will find us. And if you're over on iTunes, leave us that five-star rating and a good review. That always helps us move up the charts. And a little bit of uh, channel news, which we'll go over again on Monday on the RedNet show as well, is I did apply for Spotify last night. So we may be adding another audio platform as well. So come on and check that out. And I have to look into what it takes to do so, but I may also be adding Pandora. I needed a little bit more time and mental faculty. I mean, it was two clicks to apply for Spotify through Podbean. Podbean uh, did it on my behalf. So it was two clicks to do it on Spotify, and it looks like there's going to be a lot more to do it on Pandora. But yeah, it looks like we're going to be adding some more audio platforms as well. So come on over and check us out over there. You can take us on the go and take us anywhere. And lastly, as we always say on this channel, never take the words of bloggers, podcasters, or journalists as gospel. Find all the facts and draw your own conclusions. Take care, everybody. Have a great weekend, and we will see you back here on Monday with more Contemporary and the Red Ned Show. Take care.